Welcome to Pioneers of a More Data-Driven Union, the series created by Elder Research to spotlight government leaders leveraging analytics and technology to solve complex problems for public good. Our first series is titled AI for Public Good with multiple segments. I am Christina Ho, your host, and I'm excited to bring you another episode today. Our topic today is how is AI being applied in, to improve 700 billion worth of grant making? Our special guests are two very experienced government executives, Larry Koskinen and Michael Peckham. Larry has served the public interest for more than 40 years as an executive in the federal government, commercial professional services firms and nonprofit organization in the United States and abroad. He's currently the Chief Risk Officer at the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, where he leads HUD's Departmental Enterprise and Fraud Risk Management Programs. During his tenure at HUD, Larry has earned a positive reputation for being innovative in the use of advanced data analytics and computational linguistics to identify, understand, and remediate program and administrative control weaknesses. Thank you for joining me, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here, Christina. Mike is the Acting Chief Financial Officer and Director of the Financial Management Portfolio for the United States Department of Health and Human Services Program Support Center. He is a champion for positive change, creating new approaches to old problems through human-centered design, agile methodologies, microservices architecture, and applying emerging technology to promote data-driven business decisions. Mike has successfully led multiple agency-wide initiatives, including the Reimagine HHS Reinvent Grants Management Transformation and the HHS Data Act initiatives. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Christina. Great to be here today with you and Larry. Thank you. Um, in the previous podcast, um, the Elder Research founder, John Elder, and our special guest, Nick Sinai, who was the former U.S. Deputy CTO, both said that AI brought forward many recent breakthroughs and warranted the hype. It obviously would not be valuable if it doesn't really solve actual problems in a significant way. Today, we're going to take a look at how it is solving some real business problem in the grant-making area. So Larry and Mike, um, tell us a little bit about why grant-making is important as a whole and as it relates to your specific agency mission. Larry, would you like to go first? Sure, Christina. So HUD accomplishes much of its mission through grant making, particularly through block grants. And block grants um, really are kind of a sword that cuts two ways. They speed grant decision making and devolve important authorities to the states, but they also obscure federal oversight at the subgrantee level. And this is a big challenge for us. 
This impedes the assurance process as mandated by Congress, but it also reduces the ability to understand our subgrants as a portfolio. The ability to share positive lessons learned or detect systematic weaknesses is also diminished. This is why analytics is so important. AI allows us to see more clearly our grant making as an organic whole, so we can get both a 30,000 foot view where we need it to really understand uh, things in a broader way, uh, but we can also then uh, drill down uh, to the, uh, the subgrantee level and really see our, our program effectiveness in that way. Uh, but this is um, an extraordinary power of AI uh, and has not been available to us uh, heretofore. Great, Mike? Well, first, um, I mean, grants for HHS are huge. Um, we manage almost 70% of all the grant dollars that go out the door. So obviously we have a very vested interest in how those grant dollars are used. And uh, just um, in FY 2019, we issued $517 billion in grants. That's the magnitude of what we're talking about. And that's pre-COVID. Um, why are we so vested in this? Well, we don't always have the expertise, the bandwidth, or quite honestly, the passion that the private sector has in order to really fulfill the needs, the mission requirements of what we're trying to get at with our grants. So by building a partnership with organizations, and again, I, I stress it's a partnership with the organizations. Uh, many folks like to think it's a parent-child relationship, but we need the recipients, the grantees, in order to perform this work because they're doing it for, on behalf of and for the good of the American public. And I think that is probably the most important thing um, from an HHS perspective. Great. Both of the, uh, both HHS and HUD have such compelling mission, and grant is such an important tool to help uh, the federal government to serve the public. Uh, both of you have done something really innovative. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the specific business problems that you were trying to solve when you were uh, implementing some of these innovative programs? Mike? So I think I learned a lot from the Data Act. And I say that from the perspective of we got to lead the grants pilot. And that was how do you reduce redundancy burden for recipients? And that's a big question. So we dug into that and we realized, I would say relatively quickly, that there are compliance issues that hit on the federal government side of the house that also hit and trickle down to the recipients. So we said we've got to create efficiencies within the federal government that we can pass on to the recipients in order to be able to make a real change, um, a positive change. That's really the goal here. So I originally started thinking about building a data link. Um, that was, you know, that was a buzzword. It's still kind of a buzzword, not as much as it was, you know, three to five years ago. Um, but we utilized human-centered design or user-centered design. And we went out and we started talking to the community. And we found out there were some real practical applications that would have a big impact. And so what we landed on based on the feedback that we heard, um, again, we used an agile methodology, we built user stories and a risk assessment is what we heard was a huge pain point. Um, a ton of time spent in order to do uh, what's required under 2 CFR 200 and that is a risk assessment for um, each um, applicant prior to uh, providing them with an award we are spending between four and eight hours to do one of these risk assessments. We said, there's gotta be a better way. So we looked at across the board, we said, what are all the 
um, inputs, what systems are we going to in order to get data in order to build these risk assessments. Um, we found out there were seven across the board that everybody was utilizing. Um, and then we started to apply some emerging technology to it. And, and the emerging technology we applied depended on the source that we, of information we we're trying to get to. So it wasn't just, hey, let's throw AI at this. It was like, hey, maybe we have to throw RPA at this first. We need to extract some data, do something that a human would do. And we replicated that. And then later on down the line, we started to apply the AI. What's really cool about this is we took what is a process that's four to eight hours down to 15 minutes. And that's really a cursory review. I'm not going to say across the board it's 15 minutes, but in 15 minutes, you will figure out whether you're going to have to dive into that um, assessment a little deeper or not. But about 95% of the time, it will take just 15 minutes. And if you scale that across HHS, that's $142 million annually that we can save through this one process through the time. But I love to refer to the savings as return to mission because our goal here is to make sure that we're spending our money appropriately. And if we can shift from the administrative burden, money going, going towards the administrative side of the house, and we can apply that to the mission focus of what the grant was intended to do, then I have met the objectives that I've been trying to for the good of the American people. That's really amazing. Four to eight hours to 15 minutes. And that's really a big return on investment for the American public. That's great. Um, Larry, can you tell us about the innovative program you attempted and, and implemented? Certainly, uh, Christina. I, I first would love to just point out how extraordinarily innovative the work Mike is doing is and how much inspiration we've taken from it. We've been looking at the business proposition in the same way. Um, what we're, we take our stewardship responsibilities very seriously at HUD, of course. Um, and we're trying to understand both dimensions of stewardship, which are program impact um, out at the grantee and subgrantee level, but also the integrity of our grant making, these internal control issues Mike was talking about. But what we don't have or what we lack because of the structure of these big block grants is an objective window into the subgrantee universe. And this is a real challenge for us. Before, we would deploy evaluators and auditors based on manual statistical analysis or elapsed time since uh, since last audit. Uh, these were very cumbersome and subjective approaches that left us constantly behind the curve uh, and open also to accusations of political or technical bias. And that was really a big problem for us. With AI, we've been able to refine that universe of programs and really seek out which programs require attention more quickly and more objectively. So as Mike was saying, uh, we are faster to insight and, and we're more cheaply to insight. So this return to mission concept, which I just really appreciate, um, is a big part of our focus as well. And because our frontline subject matter experts are deeply involved in the design of the AI models, uh, there's a tremendous amount of accumulated wisdom being captured in these models. And it's really the most effective kind of knowledge management that I've ever seen. Um, knowledge management has always been held out as, as sort of a future technology that's always just right beyond our fingertips. But when you look at the way that these algorithms are developed and the deep conversation with our business owners that are required, it really unpacks the, the, the wisdom of the frontline workers and then uh, encapsulates it back into these tools in a way that that, that wisdom is available then uh, to the whole enterprise. It's, it's really very pragmatic, very exciting. Again, faster to insight and a much more cost-effective approach. 
Yeah, I really like the concept of the return to mission um, because it, it's because it's such a mission driven um, federal government is a mission driven organization. So, um, well, now, because I have spent time in the federal government, I know nothing is as easy as you guys made it sound. Uh, in fact, it's oftentimes very challenging. So what what were some of the challenges and, and lessons learned you've had um, from these um, endeavors? Larry, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, I, I would say that um, I think our biggest lesson learned is that um, the absolute irreplaceability of the frontline uh, grant manager, um, that there's no 30,000 foot technical approach to solving these kinds of problems. It comes from deep conversation. Um, and if we're going to really save the kind of resources, uh, but also make our systems uh, smarter in terms of, of uh, time to insight, uh, that the only way to do that is, is the hard way. Um, I have a parade of people through my office telling me that if I only buy this little bit of technology, uh, that all my troubles are going to go away. And I'm here to tell you that that just isn't so. And I think the other challenge we've got, and Mike touched on this earlier, is uh, right now thinking um, clearly about the difference between enterprise risk management and internal controls management. Uh, when Cir Circular A123 was rewritten, there were two big innovations that were brought to bear. One was the development of, of program-oriented enterprise risk management, which was a new discipline in government, although it's been around the private sector for a good long time. But the other, and this is a far more challenging initiative, was to change our brute force compliance approach um, to internal controls into a risk-based assurance approach, which means that our auditors and our uh, oversight community both have to get kind of out of, out of their comfort zone and uh, acknowledge the fact that not all controls are important. Some are more important than others. Uh, and that in fact, timeliness is as important sometimes as the control itself. So we've got this very interesting and very uh, friction-filled uh, conversation going on right now in the oversight community uh, that the uh, that the insights that we're bringing forward uh, through our analytic efforts uh, need to be productized in business uh, thinking that has not been done uh, in government traditionally. So it's very uncomfortable for these communities. I agree. Um, it, change is very hard. Yeah. And, uh Larry, that's a wonderful response, Christine. It kind of, it, it highlights for me the idea that when I started my work, I said, I talked to all the grant makers because in the federal government, historically, we make, we built systems to our needs and we are completely, you know, it's myopic. It's what do we need to do in order to meet our compliance and move forward. And I heard from recipients over and over again that you do this and it's wonderful and it's great and we understand why you're doing it, but you break things along the way for us. You build a new system, but it doesn't work with our legacy system or it, it puts a new requirement on our systems that we have to build out to. So I said to folks in HHS, we, you know, based on the Data Act, we had a Paperwork Reduction Act clearance. And I went out and I started talking to the entire user community. Um, and some, I, I would say, were a little unsettled by that approach. But the, the beautiful thing about this was the user stories that came out of it matched on the recipient side as well as they did on the grantor side. So everybody's seeing the same issues, the same problems. 
Um, in operations, I always say, I've been in operations for years and years and years, that a complaint is just a suggestion in, in disguise, if you listen to it the right way. And so that's what we did. And we heard a lot of complaints, but those complaints built the user stories and they built the, basically the genesis for where we needed to go. And if we hadn't engaged such a broad community, we would have built my data lake. Now that might've been a success, but I don't think I would be able to sit and talk to anybody about what am I returning to the American people through a data lake? I've got a lot of data, I've cleansed, I've curated the data, but what am I doing with the data? Um, so I was really happy that the users pointed me in the direction of, hey, do something with the risk assessment because we now have something tangible that users can relate to. And, and when I said we built this for HHS, we built this for the entire federal government to use. That was our goal. Um, we always wanted to do something. If we can do it at HHS, someone else can use it. It's that simple. But we went even beyond that. We know that the recipients have to do the same risk assessment. We built this for the recipients as well. So if we can now parlay this into a win for the recipients where they can utilize the same baseline, the same objective uh, risk assessment approach, I think we have returned value that I really didn't imagine and wouldn't have imagined if we hadn't engaged the, the broad population that we did. I really like both of you's uh, focus on, on the users and, and the stakeholders. I, I think it, it really takes uh, humility for government leaders to think about the users and what they go through. And and when you implement these technology, it's not just for technology's sake, but it's to help the users uh, and improve their experience. So um, what other opportunities do you see uh, in the grant space um, to by leveraging AI or other technology? Um well, I think that, you know, I love AI. I think AI provides so many, uh, it provides the benefit of being able to look through data and sift through data um, at a magnitude we've never realized before in our lives. But I don't think that AI is necessarily the going to solve every problem that we have. Um, and I say that from the perspective of we, we approached the different systems that we were trying to get information out of, and some of them had APIs and it made it really easy to ingest the data. The data was clean um, and we could start working with that data right away. In some cases, we had to work with some really legacy systems. And so we had to put layers of emerging technology on top of one another in order to extract the data, to, to curate, cleanse, and make that uh, usable data. And for example, the Federal Audit Clearinghouse is a wealth of information. It's just, there's just so much in there that's unbelievable. Um, any grant recipient who gets over $750,000 in, a, in a, a fiscal year is required to have a single audit performed, an audit um, that is stored at the Federal Audit Clearinghouse. Um, there is some structured data in there, and then there's a lot of unstructured data. So just an example of what we did was we went in with RPA and started extracting the information out of the Federal Audit Clearinghouse. We had to redundantly restore that, which I didn't like at all, but we have to do it. We use natural language process to make sense of unstructured data. And then once we had that into a structured format, we applied AI on top of that. And we found out that there was information in the unstructured data that we never would have known was there, such as financial audit findings. It's right there in the Federal Audit Clearinghouse, but not, not necessarily required to be reported through the conditions and terms of the structured data of the Federal Audit Clearinghouse. So looking at what your problem is and then addressing the first problem and expanding using the emerging technologies as you move throughout the process, you can start to just 
ingest data and use data like you never imagined before. I personally really love natural language processing too. There's just all these unstructured data has a wealth of um, information there. Larry, do you have anything to add? Yes. Um, so at HUD, we have also been working using uh, natural language processing and computational linguistics around the A133 data. Uh, and in a, a, a related and slightly overlapping way uh, with the, the innovations that Mike has been putting in place, we've developed weighted taxonomies of technical terms, and, and they have demonstrated a, an extraordinary ability to identify and highlight not just audit weaknesses, but also audit strengths as well. So we've been able to take a much more objective look at our audit programs and understand them, not only in terms of the quality of the, of the program, but the nature of the quality. Why are, they, why are they high quality or why are they being challenged and so forth? So um, that technology applied to public sentiment analysis out in the social media world would also, I think, come to bear um, as we work domain by domain in terms of the taxonomic development um, to allow us to see regulatory challenges as well th through the social media streams. Uh, it's remarkable how accurate these models are uh, if they're properly designed. I make another, another point. I think possibly the most exciting thing I see in terms of the new horizon uh, is the introduction of AI into the blockchain environment. Uh, there's some exciting blockchain grant making uh, going on. I, I generally hate the misapplication of the term synergy, but I think in this case it really applies. Uh, we see synergy between the continuous auditing capabilities of blockchain and AI-based analytic modeling. Uh, I think it's going to absolutely revolutionize grant making, and it shortly is going to make this conversation we're having seem sort of quaint, frankly. Um, this is as profound an innovation, I think, as the invention of TCPIP and the internet. And I don't think that's hyperbole. And before long, I think government programs are going to be targeted and executed more quickly at a higher rate of integration with more accountability than ever before. But I will say one word of warning about blockchain, um, other than the fact that you never want to say it at a cocktail party in Washington because it will cause everybody to leave the room. Uh, but blockchain can reveal much. In fact, it can reveal all things in a highly accountable and accurate and transparent way. But it can also hide all things. And as we design these blockchain grant-making environments, I think there's a, so a serious societal need to build in inclusion, transparency, uh, and equality into those systems. If we don't, my fear is that we will skew toward the hide side and, and not the reveal side. Well, talking about, um, I actually have seen some Dilbert uh, cartoon about blockchain. Uh, they're kind of funny, just to your point, Larry, earlier about if you start talking about that at the cocktail party, everybody started leaving. <laughs> and I actually yesterday was talking to my neighbor about blockchain potentially being a good solution for sharing COVID vaccination data because... Um, mm -hmm. People want to travel and, and you can't, you know, the card that you get, you know, it's easily replicatable. And um, we probably wouldn't want our health data to be shared across um, international border without feeling some really assurance that it's protected. So that's um, actually my um, conversation with my neighbor. Uh, he didn't leave. Mm -hmm. um, 
anyway, so <laughs> what would、uh, fair warning though? <laughs> what would you tell the government leaders who are、uh, in the grant making agency if they want to improve、um, grant making and and do similar things? Sure, I, I don't mean to sound preachy here when I say this, but I, I will say there is no magic bullet here.、Um, it takes a lot of minds,、uh, all applied on the same problem. Each one is necessary but insufficient. But if someone comes to you, as I was saying earlier, and it bears repeating, trying to sell you a data tool that is immediately going to give you breakthrough results, they are selling you snake oil in all in all likelihood. The future. I think, and we've seen this. Mike and I have touched this future already in our work. Involves deep, challenging collaboration between the frontline grant managers, the technology platform managers, and the data scientists. We're all going to get to know the data scientists in the future.、Uh, that is just a, such an exciting profession,、um, and the firms that are really doing good work in this area are really a lot of fun to work with. Each one of these skill sets—that's the grant maker, the platform manager, and the data scientist—is necessary but insufficient, and I, I can't stress that、uh, enough. These are not successes that can simply be commanded into being. In fact, for senior leadership, the biggest challenge—and I'm talking about executive leadership in the government—in many ways is to stay out of the way. Right? Your role as executives is to contribute the goals and a, a reliable stream of resources. Um, tolerate a bit of ambiguity in terms of the results, as because the the nature of these relationships are so exploratory. But mostly, I would say to my fellow executives, stay out of the way and let these teams work and do what they are discovering and know how to do. So I would start by saying, find out what's going on at other agencies first and foremost.、Um, We started. I started talking to Larry several years ago, just、um, by chance. And we had a 30-minute conversation, and Larry basically was like, "Well, Mike, I'm not sure why we're talking." And five minutes into the conversation, we realized exactly why we were talking, and、uh, understood that we could really start to learn a lot from one another. And we have been meeting on a regular basis for the last two years.、Um, you want to share information so you can complement and capitalize on others' investments. I don't think that we need to be going out and trying to one up one another. That's that's not worth it. That's not the point of what we're trying to do here.、Um, I found out about the work that Larry was doing on sentiment analysis, and I was just amazed. I was infatuated actually with the work, and so I had it in the back of my mind. And as we went through our process of working with all the users, we heard from the users. Oh, by the way, we go out and we do a Google search on every single one of these potential recipients of an award, and so. All of a sudden, the idea pops into my head because of the conversations. Well, wait a minute. Maybe I can leverage some of the work that Larry has done already in sentiment analysis and start to build that into the risk assessment, which is exactly what we did. We built a news aggregator using sentiment analysis so that we could put in front of a user at a click of a button within the tool itself what are the Google returns. And what we did was we prioritized based on negative sentiment because that's what the users told us that they were looking for. It's not, you know, this is all user based, and we've tried this out with a few of our. It's not in the GDD currently, the grant recipient digital dossier, but it is something to be released there. And in all honesty, had we not started that collaborative effect, a、uh, uh, uh, partnership, I should say, I don't know that I would have done this. And I think that it's a huge value add to the community. 
Um, I do want to just you know throw one other little thing since we had a conversation there about blockchain. Um, I said that you you keep to layer keep layering the technology into what you're doing. Well, that's exactly what we did. And at the point in time when somebody runs a risk assessment in the grant recipient digital dossier, it stores all that information on a blockchain. We put we built the first grants blockchain. We've got an authority to operate, and um, we've heard from the audit community that they love the idea because going back and trying to recreate what a risk assessment looked like two or three years ago through a paper file can be very hard to say the least. Um, we are eliminating the need for the user to, to, to grab all that information, print it out, throw it in a folder, and we're storing it all on a blockchain so that anybody can go back later and check and see exactly what that recipient looked like at the point in time when that risk assessment was done. So there shouldn't be a whole lot of questions after the fact. Um, and that's what a blockchain is really good for. And so that's what we utilize within our little ecosystem. Um, now I want to see what we can build out and, and work off of other blockchains that are that are being, you know, foundationally built right now. I think there's just an incredible uh, room for some really big growth in the, uh, I will say, utilization of empirical data for the betterment of the government. Well, I see some really a few commonalities here. One of the things that I notice is both of you start with really, you know, the business problem really well, and then you're not afraid of the technology and you are willing to take risks to try to solve the problem and, and uh, versus, you know, starting with the technology and then trying to find a problem to solve, which is one of the thing I think is probably define your success um, because you know the problems and then you can demonstrate that return on mission ultimately. Well, this gets me to my final question for you. Um, I know that innovating government is really, really hard. Uh, I have done it and, and it wasn't always successful either, but it was hard for sure. So my question is, why, what drives you to do these hard things? Are you like crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it takes. <laughs> well, Mike, what drives you to do these um, things? So I've been in the government not as long as Larry, almost 35 years now. So I've got a little bit of tenure under my belt. And I've probably seen some of the most inefficient systems and processes that you could ever imagine. So I had the opportunity to make a difference. And how can you possibly say no to an opportunity like that? Um, I knew it was going to be tough. I knew it was going to be challenging. It's always going to be tough. It's always going to be challenging because you're, you're talking about culture change ultimately here. And culture change, as everybody knows in the business world, is the hardest change you can ever possibly make. Um, but when I went into the work, um, you know, one of the first things I heard was, you know, what's your change management strategy? And I said, well, we're not even at change management yet. We haven't even, you know, implemented anything. You know, we don't have anything to implement. Um, it, it got really funny really fast because through the utilization of user-centered design, organically people bought into what we were doing. And I think that minimized, you know, the, the, the need for change management because we've had people coming to us saying, hey, we heard about this tool that you created. Can we see it? We show it to them. They have suggestions for us. We implement some of the suggestions, come back to them two weeks later and say, hey, here's what we built, you know, based on what you were talking about. And they literally say, so when can I have this? 
because it's this whole show me culture in the federal mm -hmm. government. And so we've been able to show them that we can make these changes. I did a demo last Friday and the person looking at the demo said, oh my God, this is real data that you're working with. This isn't just a wireframe. This isn't just a, a prototype. And I said, no, this is actual real data. And what you're seeing is what they look like today. And we're actually storing what this, this you know, logging this on our blockchain. So um, it's exciting when you actually can show people that there's going to be a positive end game. Um, that gets me excited and that's what keeps me coming back. Larry? So uh, I love this question and I have to really reflect on it because uh, I have to say being a change manager in government is, is, uh, is its own punishment most of the time. Uh, but if you really do believe in the perfectibility of our civil society, um, it really, there are ways that you can improve our stewardship. Um, and that means both um, on the program quality side uh, and the program integrity side. But at the end of the day, you know, and people will say, how are you doing today? And I say, well, just another exciting day pe putting people in houses. Um, we help ensure that vulnerable American families are put into decent homes. And that is just a sacred mission um, and drives me every day through the frustrations that we, that we deal with. Um, from a practical standpoint, as, as, a, as an agency or as a department of the federal government, our goal is really to be more reliable partners to the state, local, tribal governments that we work with every day, um, as well as the private equity investors whose confident participation is critical to leveraging those efforts. And at HUD, we motivate private equity for public good. And we do that by doing this kind of risk assessment and, and, and understanding where risk needs to be mitigated uh, so that private investors, uh, equity investors can step in and really be reliable partners with us because they view us as a reliable partner uh, uh, to work with. That's, that's a hard problem to solve, but a really important problem to solve. So, you know, most of us, are, our hearts beat uh, for, uh, you know, the, the families that we're helping to house. But at the end of the day, we have to live in the spreadsheets uh, as well. And you can't, you can't do one or the other. You can't just pick and choose. So the hardest problem, finally, uh, is that we're really right now embarked on this extraordinary once in a generation shift uh, in the tools and techniques of governance itself. You know, I think Mike and I grew up uh, firmly planted in, the, in a government where you had branch chiefs and you had, you know, the very hierarchical uh, bureaucratic structures. Uh, and that kind of structure is really beginning to go away. Um, and I, I think, in fact, what we're really prototyping here is a new world of governing where we're making this shift from the noun form to the verb form. And this governing uh, challenge and this governing opportunity uh, really is, is going to be built on bits and bytes and these kind of tools and techniques we're talking about and not in the bricks and mortars uh, you know, uh, paradigm that we all grew up with. It's a very challenging time. It's a scary time for, for folks who need a stronger mooring uh, in their day-to-day -day work. But I think uh, the norms that we're beginning to discover, the tools and techniques that we're beginning to really perfect here um, are just as reliable and in far more uh, amenable to creating uh, impact that is going to matter to our citizen clients. Um, what an exciting time. What an exciting time to be doing this work. Wow, Mike and Larry, I really want to thank you. Um, 
your commitment to serve the public is really inspiring. And and I know that um, having worked in the government myself, it's just oftentimes mm-hmm. the daily grind and, and the difficulty. But you were able to really persevere and achieve some real result in, in serving the public. So thank you so much. And, and your openness and resilience really make me feel more hopeful about our future. Um, because I agree with you, Larry, that we have a lot of problems, um, complex ones that we have to solve. But with uh, technology, with leaders like you, I, I definitely feel hopeful that we can solve these problems together. So thank you so much for sharing your insights. I think it will be really helpful to our audience and want to you know, really learn about how things are done. Um, so thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure, Christina. Always happy. Yes, thank you very much, Christina and Larry. Thank you. Thank you.